Ecclesiastes chapter 12 is where we are. If you do not have a Bible that's on page 667 of the Bibles that are found underneath the chairs. And uh, in just a few moments, I'm going to read Ecclesiastes chapter 12, beginning at verse 9. Now, this series that we have done during the months of July and August is coming to an end today. It's a series of studies on the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. And I've called this series, The Preacher Goes to the Movies. And as I've said before, the reason I called him the preacher is not to refer to myself, but it's the name of the person who wrote the bulk of the book of Ecclesiastes. In Hebrew, his name is Koheleth, and we've translated as the preacher, or in some versions, it's the teacher. And uh, we've, I'm calling this series, The Preacher Goes to the Movies, because every week I choose a movie clip that, to my, in my mind, illustrates what I'm going to talk about that morning. So this morning is no exception. I'd like to start off today with a movie clip from the movie About a Boy. Many of you have probably seen that movie. And in my view, there could be no better clip to show you than this one to summarize the entire book of Ecclesiastes. I think in this clip you're going to see in a, in a nutshell the main emphasis of the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, about a Boy is about a fellow by the name of Will Freeman. He is played by Hugh Grant. And Will Freeman is a rich, single Londoner in search of available women. He has everything that a young man might possibly want to be happy. But in this particular scene, you're going to look deeply into his soul. Let's watch. No Life is made up of units of time. Buying CD, two units. Eating lunch, three units. Exercising, two units. All in all, I had a very full life. It's just that it didn't mean anything. Ecclesiastes at a glimpse. This book is about a man just like that. He had a full life. He had money, talent, wisdom, power, women, but it didn't mean anything. What I want to do this morning is tie up some loose ends, review the whole book, and then go into the epilogue, which we're going to read shortly. But first, I think it might be helpful if I summarize what we've learned this summer. This might benefit those of you who've never been here before, don't know what the book is about. It would also hopefully give a good review to those of you who've been through the series with me. But I chose five big ideas to give you in one glimpse here to show you what the book of Ecclesiastes is all about. First, 
It's about the fact that there is no meaning in life apart from God. Without God in the center, there is no meaning in the various things that one might pursue, just like the Hugh Grant character found out. Secondly, in this book, you notice that time is short and we're told to enjoy the present, but don't live for the present. Instead, prepare for eternity. Third lesson, don't go it alone in life. You need friends. You need relationships. Fourth lesson, your desires and your longings are invitations from God to know Him better. We looked at that last week. And finally, when you feel life is unfair, trust God to fix the brokenness in His time and in His way. I think those five things really give a good display of what we've learned this summer So what I want to do now is take you to the end of the book. It's called the epilogue, the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes. It is written not by Koheleth, the preacher, but by a second person that I've already talked about in this series. We're going to call him the narrator today. And he looks at everything that the preacher has said. And in this epilogue, he gives his own slant on everything. I don't want to give it away yet. I want you to stay with me through the sermon. So let me read, and you listen carefully to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, beginning at verse 9. Not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good Or evil. And this is the word of the Lord. One of the things that I've said again and again during this series is that the preacher does not see life, nor does he see the world correctly. He's looking at life under the sun, that is, apart from a relationship of faith in a loving God. And so, even though he says some things in the book of Ecclesiastes that we would agree with wholeheartedly, he also says some very strange and bizarre things that make us scratch our head and wonder, where is he coming from? Let me show you some of the things we've already seen in this series with which you and I would have a great problem, okay? So, first of all, he says everything is meaningless. He says that over and over and over again in this book. 38 times he says something in life is utterly meaningless, And another word for meaningless would be pointless or empty or frustrating or futile or worthless. He says wisdom is worthless, for example. He says pleasure is meaningless. Projects are meaningless. Achievement is meaningless. So are words even meaningless. And he says money is meaningless as well. His closing words in chapter 12 in verse 8 that we looked at last week are, Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Now, you and I know better. You and I know that with God in the center, life is not meaningless. 
Life is full of purpose and significance and joy and adventure. But you see, he is reflecting his godless worldview. Another very strange thing he says is in chapter 2. He says, a man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. Now there again, we take issue with this. There are a lot of things in life that are good to do than just eating and drinking and finding satisfaction in work. But that's what the preacher says. In chapter 3, he said this, Man's fate is like that of the animals. Man has no advantage over the animals. All go to the same place. Is that true? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We know that man is not like just an animal. We don't go to the same place. Our destiny is not just the grave. This life is not all there is. But again, we're reading the preacher's worldview. In chapter 9, look at what else he said. He said, all share a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad. And once more, that is not a correct view of things. The good and bad don't have the same destiny. In chapter 7... We saw this one week a very strange comment from the preacher. He said, do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Now, this man is a preacher. You know, I'm a preacher. I'm not going to tell you not to be over-righteous. I'm going to tell you, go ahead, be over-righteous. Go to the extreme. In chapter 9, look at what the preacher said. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong. Nor does food come to the wise or wealth to the brilliant or favor to the learned, but time and chance happen to them all. Once again, a worldview that is devoid of God, of sovereign goodness. He says time and chance happen to us all. And finally, one of the most shocking things the preacher says that you ladies are going to get a great kick out of, I'm sure. He said in chapter 7, I found one upright man among a thousand, but not one upright woman among them all. I did not say that. that. That's what the Bible says through the preacher. But we take issue with this. That is not true. So Ecclesiastes then is filled with statements that are at best puzzling and at worst contrary to the rest of the teaching of Scripture. So if that's true, then you and I need to be good Bible students today and answer two questions. And the two questions are, one, how are we to interpret these closing verses of the book of Ecclesiastes that appear to commend the preacher? That's the first question. And second question is, why is this book even in the Bible? You know, when you pick it up and read those things that we take great issue with, why is the book even in the Bible in the first place? So I'm going to deal rather quickly with the first question because it's a little technical. So stay with me. Hang through the first question. I'll try to answer it the best I can. And then we'll get into the second question, which is, I hope, a little bit more practical because I really want to deal with you who are doubters, who are skeptics, and who might wonder, why is this book even in the Bible? So the first question is, how are we to interpret the epilogue, the the concluding portion of the book of Ecclesiastes. After all, when you read it and take it at first glance, it seems to be very positive toward the preacher. 
You know, he has said all these things with which we disagree. And then it sounds like that the narrator comes back in and says, what a great guy he was. All these wonderful, truthful things he said. How do we interpret the epilogue? Well, most of the books that you're going to read on Ecclesiastes take the view that the epilogue is somehow a compliment of the preacher. That somehow whatever the narrator says, he is commending the preacher for being a wise person. And I'm taking a different view on this epilogue. I think that in this epilogue, the narrator is critiquing the preacher and correcting his faulty theology. Now, I'm not the only one in the world who believes that, but it is a minority view, and I want to try to show you why I believe that. First of all, how could the narrator compliment the preacher when the preacher has been so wrong? You say, well, it sounds very positive. All right, let's walk through it. Let's start with verse 9 right there at the top of the passage where the narrator says, not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. All right, well enough. What this verse teaches is that Koheleth, or the preacher, was a wise person. He was a sage. He taught people. He studied the proverbs that other wise people had written. And he arranged them and classified them and pondered them and set them out before the people of God. So far, so good. Then verse 10 says, The teacher searched to find just the right words. And what he wrote was upright and true. Now we have a problem. That sounds very much like a compliment. It sounds like the preacher did a great job. He worked real hard and found good words and what he wrote was true. But how does that square with what I showed you earlier? Well, there are other translations of this same verse. And uh, I prefer to go with the translation called the New American Standard Bible. That's what NASB stands for. Notice that it translates verse 10 a little differently. It says, The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. Now notice, please, the word sought. That's the key word in that translation. It suggests that the preacher tried to find delightful words. He sought to write words of truth correctly, but it leaves open the possibility that he was unsuccessful. See, that word sought means try to do something, attempt to do something, but the verse doesn't actually say that he did it. Now, that word sought is real interesting because it is used elsewhere in the book of Ecclesiastes. And the times when it is used backs what I'm saying. Let me show you a couple of times when the word sought, the same Hebrew word, is used in the book of Ecclesiastes. Turn in your Bible backwards to chapter 7, verse 28. Ecclesiastes 7, 28 says, While I was still searching, but not finding. You see that? While I was still searching, but not finding. That word searching is the same Hebrew word that's translated as sought here in the version on the screen. So what that verse says is that it's possible to search for something and not find it. We all know that anyway. That's pretty obvious. And then there's one other case that it's used, and that's in chapter 8, verse 17. Look at that. Chapter 8, verse 17. 
says, Then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all his efforts to search it out, same Hebrew word, man cannot discover its meaning. What the preacher is saying in that verse is that uh, all the efforts to find something were unsuccessful. Same Hebrew word. Now go back again to chapter 12, verse 10, because what I'm saying is that it's entirely possible that the teacher sought to find words that are pleasant and delightful. He searched to find words that were true and upright, but he failed. So that makes verse 10 not a compliment of the preacher, but actually a criticism of the preacher. And that's how I take that verse. So the preacher was a confused wise man. I have said that before in our series. He was a doubting sage. There were a lot of those people back in the Old Testament period. You can go through and I could even show you a couple of wise people who gave bad advice. They were respected as sages, wise men and women, but they were not to be trusted in certain situations. Now, don't misunderstand me here. Before you uh, accuse me of a heretic here, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. What the preacher wrote was inspired by God. Every single word that the preacher wrote in his journal was a product of the work of the Holy Spirit inspiring him to write exactly what God wanted him to write. But ripped out of context... If you just take one or two or some verses like I showed you earlier and take them out of context, you'll go off in a wrong direction. They're bad advice even though they are inspired by God. Now, you might have to go home and wrestle with that a little bit. But that is true. You always have to take the context into account. What is the context of the book of Ecclesiastes? The context of it is a worldview that is missing God. And so it's no surprise that he would say the things that he said in that context. You must always read the Bible that way, intelligently. It's so dangerous to simply turn in your Bible and take your finger and point at a verse and say, there's my verse, you know, without any awareness of what's going on around that particular verse. So when it says in verse 11 that the words of the wise are like goads, And their collected sayings are like firmly embedded nails. It doesn't necessarily mean that all the words of the wise were good. Goads and nails were part of a shepherd's trade. They were used to keep cattle in line. They are sharp. They can hurt you. (laughs) They were painful instruments. And if they weren't used correctly, they were dangerous. So the narrator seems to be warning his son in verse 11 to be wary when reading words of wise people. Don't take them out of context because not all of them are helpful. Some are bad and dangerous. That, I think, is the analogy of the goad and of the nail. Verse 12, the the narrator goes on to say, Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Uh, I think a better way of saying that is to simply say, furthermore, my son, be warned. Furthermore, my son, be warned. The narrator is saying, be careful. There are a lot of wise people out there who write books like this one. 
And if you try to keep up with them all, you'll wear yourself out. If you follow all their advice, you'll go crazy. So do you see then that rather than complimenting the preacher, the narrator is actually warning us to read him critically. Read him with both eyes wide open. He was a wise person, yes. He imparted knowledge, yes. There is truth in his book, to be sure. But in his book are also many things that will be misunderstood if you forget the context of Ecclesiastes. So read it with care. And I trust you believe that that's been the approach that we've taken all summer. We've tried to read the book with care, considering the whole purpose for which God gave us the book. Well, there is enough of the technical. Now, if you're still with me, we're going to move on to the second question that I said I'd like to answer this morning, and I hope it will be very practical and very encouraging for you. If the preacher was a confused, wise person, And if much of what he put in his journal, taken out of context, is contrary to the rest of Scripture and could hurt you if you read it uncritically, then why is it in our Bible? That question occurred to many of you this summer. Uh, I had several people come up to me after several Sundays and say, Mike, if this preacher was so off his rocker, Why is his book even in the Bible? Why would God allow so many inaccurate statements to be collected and gathered and put into a book that is made up, uh, makes up one of the books in in our Bibles? Well, look, when I heard that question, here's how I responded. What do you do with the book of Job? The book of Job is composed of 42 chapters of conversations Conversations between Job and his three friends, conversations with God and Job, and so on. Forty-two chapters, from chapter 3 to chapter 37, are all kinds of wrong advice. All kinds of statements that, if taken out of context, would prove absolutely wrong. And it's not until chapter 38 that God steps in and corrects the faulty theology of Job's three friends. The same thing is happening in the book of Ecclesiastes. We have, first of all, a prologue in which the narrator sets the stage. And then you have almost 12 chapters written by a confused wise man. And at the end, the narrator comes back. We would say God comes back and sets the record straight and corrects the faulty theology of the preacher. Well, that may not totally answer all of your question about that. So let's go further. Why is this book in the Bible? Let me give you two reasons. We could say more, but I'll just pick two. One reason that occurs to me that God allowed this book to be in the Bible is to prove to you that it's okay to have doubts and ask questions. This book proves that God thinks it's okay for you to be a doubter. Isn't that exactly what the preacher was? He was a doubter. He asked all kinds of questions and doubted the meaning of life. He doubted the love of God. He doubted the existence of an afterlife, the benefits of wisdom, the value of work, the equality of men and women. The preacher doubted all those things. He doubted the sovereignty of God. He doubted that faithful followers of God would be rewarded one day and lawbreakers would be punished. He doubted that. Have you ever doubted one of those things? 
I suspect that if we went around the room today, many of us would say, I've struggled with some of the truth claims of Christianity. Some of you have deep questions about the Bible, about why we believe it's inspired, why we can trust the Bible, and how come we know that it is without error. Some of you wonder where God is when things are tough. Why would a loving God send Hurricane Gustav our way? We struggle with those questions. Those are honest questions. And here is one of the 66 books of the Bible dealing with honest doubts. I find that tremendously encouraging. God is saying that your doubts are legitimate. That you're not bad just because you're asking questions. It's okay to be a skeptic. It's okay to not check your brain in at the door when you come into the family of God. And I might add, this is a church that believes you need to be a thinker. It's okay to ask questions here at UPC. Some of the greatest men and women of faith, both in the scriptures as well as throughout history, have been doubters. Job, I've mentioned already. I mean, throughout his book, Job questions God and puzzles over God's ways. And yet we come to the end of the book of Job and God does not condemn Job. Instead, he commends him and condemns his three friends who had all the pat answers. There are other Bible characters who doubted. There was Abraham. There was his wife, Sarah. Moses, Gideon, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, doubted the promise of God. Peter was a big doubter and many, many others as well. One of the 12 disciples, in fact, is virtually synonymous with the whole topic of doubting. We call him Doubting Thomas. And Jesus loved him a lot. Here's the point. It is not the absence of, or rather, let me put it a different way. It is not the presence of doubt that matters. It is the object of your faith that matters. You can have faith in the right person and still shoulder a little bit of doubt and hesitancy. Isn't that the whole beauty of the story in Mark chapter 9? The story of a father who brought his son who was demon-possessed to Jesus. And he said, Jesus, your disciples couldn't cast out the demon. And Jesus cast out the demon. But he said first, he said, do you believe it's possible that all things are possible with Christ? And the answer of the man in Mark 9 was, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. See, there was a little bit of doubt, but he knew that he had the right object of faith. So it's not the presence of doubt that matters. It's the object of your faith. It's who you're trusting in. If you're trying to get through life trusting in yourself, if you're trying to live life as the preacher did, independently of God, then you're on the wrong path. But if you're trusting Jesus know that sometimes you might have an honest question or two about the way he does things. And that's quite all right. To doubt is human. Doubt can be a very good thing. Many people have become Christians as they've worked their way through their questions and problems with the scriptures and other things. Some people need to doubt before they can believe. That's just the way they're wired. Questions, doubt, rather doubt leads to questions and questions can lead to answers and answers can lead to God. So if you're a doubter, I want to give you four pointers this morning, four takeaways. If you're a skeptic or a doubter, four things. First of all, 
Don't be afraid to explore your doubts and ask your questions. Don't be afraid to explore your doubts and ask your questions. God is big enough to handle them. He can handle your questions, your fears, and your doubts. But seek those answers. Read the Bible for yourself with an open mind and come to the Bible on its own terms, not yours. Pray to God and ask Him to guide you into all truth. Talk to some people who've walked with God for a while. Sit down and ask them questions. See what they can teach you. And read books that address your questions with honesty and integrity. I might uh, give a little advertisement at this point and tell you that if you're looking for a book that will deal honestly with some of the skeptical questions that we have, this would be my choice for you. The Reason for God by Tim Keller. It is an excellent book. I would really hope many of you will read that and get uh, up on what you know Keller says to address some of the questions that we have. Secondly, what would I say if you're a doubter this morning? You must be willing to follow the trail of answers wherever it leads. If you're going to be a skeptic, if you're going to be a seeker, that's great. But don't do it unless you're willing to follow the trail of answers wherever it goes. Illustration. If I wanted to join the Marine Corps, I want to be a soldier. I go to the recruiting office and I say to the recruiting officer, I say, I want to be a Marine. But there's this place I've heard of called Paris Island. I don't really want to go there for boot camp. I don't think that would go over too well to you. Or there's a country I've heard of called Afghanistan. Don't send me there. That wouldn't work. Similarly, don't come to God with your questions until, unless you're willing to say, God, I really want to know the truth and I will go wherever the truth takes me. Jeremiah 29:13 says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. Third thing I would say if you're a doubter, don't mistake stubbornness for doubt. Don't mistake stubbornness for doubt. Doubt is okay. Stubborn unbelief is not. So I'm going to ask you to examine your heart. Look at your questions. Look at your doubt for a moment. If you say you're a skeptic, but what you really are is hardened against God, you're lying to yourself. See, we are commanded by God to believe His Word. And if you just sort of dig in your heels and refuse to believe, that's not doubt. That's rebellion. If rebellion becomes your hardened lifestyle, doubt will take you to hell. Make no mistake about that. But doubt can be the fertile soil of faith if you really want to know the truth. The fourth and last thing I would say if you're a doubter is at some point you're going to have to live by what light you have. At some point, you're going to have to say, you know what, I won't find the answers to all my questions, but I'm going to go by what I know. I'm going to move out from here on faith. See, you cannot wait for every answer to come. It won't come. Not all of the answers are going to be found this side of heaven. God commands you to follow him now. Verse 13 is very clear of our text where the narrator says, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. I hear the narrator saying, enough! Enough of the preacher! Let's get on about it! 
Let's fear God, keep His commandments, live by His word. You must do that too. At some point, you've got to live on what light you have. Why did God put the book into or the book of Ecclesiastes into the Bible? Because number one, it's okay to have doubts. Here's the other answer. Why did He put it in the Bible? Why is it here in our scriptures? To lead us to Jesus Christ. I'm convinced that the reason that so much of the book says meaningless, meaningless is to show us that we need a Savior. We need a Savior. The very last verse of the book is pretty scary. It says, For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. If that verse is true, and I've banked my life on it, then you and I need a Savior. Someone who has lived a perfect life for us. Someone who has died the death we should have died and who loves us so much as to change us from the inside out. Have you given your life to Christ? Have you made the decision to cross the line of faith and say yes to God? If not, He is the answer to every life's question. With Him, there is true meaning to be found in this world. But you must give your life lock, stock, and barrel to Him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank You that You are allowing us to read such an honest book and You put it in the Bible to show us that it's all right to come to You with questions. I pray for the many in our midst today who probably have questions of all kinds and pray that they will be seekers after truth. Help them not to rest until they have found their rest in you. And Lord, if there's anyone here who has not answered that ultimate question of what will you do with Jesus, I pray that they will do what they should with Jesus Christ. Receive him, follow him, love him and serve him. Thank you that he is our answer. And we pray in his name. Amen.